Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Heritage Events Live, Senator Jim Inhofe on the value of the Electoral College. We're delighted to have you with us. Please welcome Hans von Spakovsky, Manager of the Election Law Reform Initiative and Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Well, welcome everyone to the Heritage Foundation, and that includes folks who, who actually are in our Allison Auditorium, I think for the first time in a year, plus uh, everyone uh, watching remotely across the country. Uh, we are doing a program on the value of the Electoral College and to introduce the program and introduce Senator Inhofe, who's here to give our keynote speech. Uh, we're going to see a uh, introduction by Kay Cole James, the president of the Heritage Foundation. Hello and welcome to today's event on the Electoral College. We're so happy to have you with us and I'm Kay James, president of the Heritage Foundation. For over 200 years, America has elected its president through the Electoral College. While it's a unique method for choosing a president, our country's framers intentionally designed it this way. They wanted to strike a critical balance between the people being able to choose their leader and states having proper representation in the process. The framers realized that if the pendulum swung too far in either direction, it could lead to either the tyranny of the majority or the tyranny of the minority. In hindsight, their design was a success. The Electoral College has continued to promote stable and fair elections throughout American history. But unfortunately, today, too many Americans have forgotten the genius behind this design. Frustrated by the results of the 2016 elections, the left has tried to undo the Electoral College through something called the National Popular Vote Movement. That movement is a threat that should concern all Americans because it would fundamentally change the way we elect a president and destroy the safeguards that the Electoral College provides. 15 states and Washington, D.C. have already signed on to this dangerous agreement. All the left needs for it to go into effect are a few more states to join with the combined 75 electoral votes. As we get into more detail with our speakers today, it's our hope that people will have a greater understanding of why the Electoral College is worth preserving and why the national popular vote movement is a threat to our republic. Our special guest today is the Honorable Jim Inhofe. Senator Inhofe has represented Oklahoma since 1994. He serves as the ranking member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, where he plays a key role in ensuring our military has the best equipment, training, and resources to meet our national security challenges. As a veteran of the U.S. Army, he's also defended this nation and the very principles that ensure our continued success. True to the Constitution, Senator Inhofe has been a longtime defender of the Electoral College. Most recently, 
he published an outstanding piece in the Daily Signal about all the ways the left is wrong in their design to abolish it. I would encourage you to read it and share it with others as it offers a great education on the need for such a system. As he says in the piece, the benefits of the electoral college don't affect just one political party, they affect all Americans. Before we hear from the Senator, I also wanna mention one other critical educational tool, an essay to read booklet that the Mies Center has put together called the Essential Electoral College. You can download it from the website at heritage.org backslash electoral college. After the Senator's remarks, he'll be joined by two more experts, Heritage's Hans von Spotsky and the founder and executive director of the Save Our States, Mr. Trent England. And with that, Senator Enhoff, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you guys. I First of all, I've had the honor of being here before, and it, it is uh, really is a great honor because the kind of people who are interested in in uh, the, uh, the the group and what we're doing in our mission today are the kind of people that are our, our kind of people. And a lot of them are very quiet out there, but they're there. I want to mention one thing that I, I don't think that we were uh, uh, people are aware of. I go back with the heritage of the, Hans, it may even be longer than you go back uh, to the at the at the heritage, because uh, I first met the guy that ended up being the 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 major major benefactor of the heritage. Uh, his name was Joe Coors, the famous Coors Brewery and all that. At that time, I was uh, in the University of Colorado, and uh, we uh, we got to know each other because I was. I was the, I, I don't really talk about this too much, but I was the head bartender at the largest 3-2 beer bar in America. It was called Tulagi's, and it's, I think it's still up there. But anyway, I got to know this guy, Joe Coors, at that time, really a, a great guy. And this was way back in the 50s. Now, our friendship lasted on up through the, the 70s and, and until his death, actually. And I remember so well of uh, his calling me up one time and this is about, it would have been, had to have been 1973 when you guys all started. And he said, Enhoff, you got to come up here and meet these guys. There's Ed Fellner. Uh, he's going to be the president of this organization uh, that, that the Heritage Foundation is, is starting. And this was the very first when that happened. And, uh, and I got to know them and we started working together on various things. We actually had one great reform that the Heritage Foundation and me had put together. And that was one, something that started back in 1931, a guy named John Nance Garner was the, uh, from Texas. He was the, the uh, he was the uh, Speaker of the House. And he figured out a way that he could hide the votes of his people so that the people at home would not know how they vote. And the reason for this was, he's from Texas, and of course they're off, uh, all the Democrats are for gun control and none of the people from Texas are. So he devised a way to keep them from finding out. And we exposed that back in 1994. And that was something that was a major triumph from uh, the Heritage Foundation, Hans, and and uh, and me. So that was a, 
that was a fun thing that we did at that time. So let me just uh, thank you for for having me here. Let me start off by saying that this there are two attacks on the Electoral College. I know that uh, we are very familiar with the newest thing that's happened, the national popular vote, uh, and that should be shown on the screen. There it is. And then the other thing is the the reject of the of the electoral college results of the states. Now today we're going to talk about those two uh, attacks that are out there. The attacks on the electoral college are the most dangerous that they that they uh, a conservative can have ever. And this is something that has happened. But first, the electoral college and you know why it's important. Look at the next screen there. That's Madison. Uh, Madison was uh, was a real stickler on this thing. You got to keep in mind this is the first time we were actually uh, was were moving into this. This is back in 1787, 1787. Of course, that's when the Constitution was uh, developed, and uh, they were concerned because at that time in 1787 there were a total of of uh, 13 states or colonies, 13 states. And four of them were very large states. Nine were very small states. Well, all the, the, the majority of the population, if we were to make our constitution to be a popular vote, then the, 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 all, the, all they'd really care about is the four large states. They had more than 50% of the population. And so we, uh, we had that and, and uh, that was something that was, and, and they figured out a way to, to make sure that they didn't have the the office, have all the power in the large states, and they called that the creation of the electoral college. Now that's how long ago that happened. Keep, keep in mind that's been that's been 230 years ago, and and that's been it's, it's existed all that time. So anyway, we use electoral college today to the rights of rural people in smaller states. We understand that the. Uh, Democrat uh, presidential nominee, if you stop and think about this, this is something that surprised me when I first thought, thought about it. And when you hear people talk and ask questions, well, wait a minute, why are we concerned with that? And why was the Electoral College so important? And why shouldn't it be just the, the standard popular vote? Well, the, the obvious reason is if you do that, you're going to have the, the, the uh, large states owning everything. But uh, on, on that, the results, if you look back at the election, now you guys uh, in the audience here are young, but you remember the, what happened during uh, in 2016 when uh, uh, President Trump was running. And uh, at that time, the, the, the Hillary Clinton got the popular vote in 2016. And, but stop and think about this, and this is, this is surprising. She carried the total number of counties that she carried in the United States were 487 counties. President Trump uh, carried 2,626 counties. Now, think of it: uh, 487 to 2,626. So, you, you know, which one is really the 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 favorite of the of all of those, and and that's how it worked. That's how the electors uh, initially uh, wanted this to happen. So, the states have to be electors, and this is the one thing that people forget. This it, this the, the system doesn't work unless the states are the electors. They have to be the electors. They have to uh, do the balloting, and uh, and that is the key. So, 
Hence, this is what we have, Article 2, Section 1. That's what this is all about. The, um, uh, each state shall appoint electors to meet in their respective states and mail in their ballots the person voted for as president and vice president. And so that's how that's how uh, how it started. And it's very clear. And what you have to keep in mind in looking at this academically is that it had to be it had to be the states that were doing it, not the federal government. It had to be the states. And you have to you see this over and over again. So it was very clear just why they did this. And that's why the vote on uh, January 6th was a threat to the preservation of the Electoral College. They wanted, and this is the vote everyone's aware of, this is the one that people got all emotional over. There are a lot of people who started supporting this, not knowing that they were opposing the Electoral College by doing this. So they, they had uh, GOP members were objecting to the counting, the state counting. They wanted to do away with the state counting. They didn't think about what that would happen in the long run. So on January 6th, they wanted to disqualify the votes of the states so the federal legislators would become the presidential electors, but that's not what the Constitution says. The Constitution clearly demands that the states are the electors, thereby killing the electoral college. That's what was at stake at that time on January 6th. So uh, then it goes on. Most of that was Madison. It was in, involved in that at that time. Then along came Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton. Now, he had a different idea on this thing. He, he was afraid that it wasn't going to work, that we were be able to insist that it be the states are going to be in charge. He was demanding that that happens. So he came out with uh, the Federalist 68, and this is actually the exact wording of it right now. No senator, representative, or other person holding a place of trust can be electors. It can't happen. No senator or representative can be electors. So uh, that, that would pretty much take care of that, he felt at that time, and it, and it looked like it did. So they purposely excluded members of Congress as serving as electors. He said, it's got to be the states. So what did the founding fathers want? They wanted the states, not the federal government, to, be, to elect the president. Now, if you deny this, you violate your oath of office. And uh, the vote on January 6th, it was to reject the states, the state electors, and of course, that means the Electoral College. So the people who were supporting that were opposed to the Electoral College and, uh, and, and to give the electors the federal Congress. Now, they actually had down there that, that in this vote that took place on the 6th of January, that it, it would have to be uh, done uh, by that uh, time and, and, and they would have to uh, uh, reject the state's role in all of this. And I, you know, I know there's an argument, and a lot of people, and some of you guys might be, the younger people might be thinking about this also, that it seems at that time that, uh, you know, here's your document. It's uh, 230 years old. Now, it's, it's something, you know, they didn't have airplanes back then. It's, it's, it's a different world altogether. And so a lot of people, and I suggest some of our own United States congressmen, were of the opinion that it's outdated and it ought to be changed. And I, th I think that there is an argument that can be made on that. I mean, maybe I'm a purist, but I've taken the oath of office 18 times. Now, no, none of you kids are from Oklahoma, so you're not aware of this. But in Oklahoma, I have actually taken the oath of office 18 times. That's more times than anyone 
in the history of Oklahoma. So I, you know, I, I really believe in that oath, and I've had very strong feelings about it. So, uh, and and I have to say this also, that would have been that vote was an unconstitutional vote in two ways. First of all, the uh, the the what was on the ballot on January sixth was to eliminate state balloting. Well, that's exactly you've already heard it. That the Constitution says got to be state balloting, and then the second thing. Uh, was un unconstitutional was to give the balloting for office to Congress, to the House members and the Senate members. But now back up one if you can. Yeah, there it says no senator or representative can be electors. I mean that's that's very specific, and yet they were saying that they had to be. So clearly that was unconstitutional. So um, anyway, getting the oath of office uh, that's important. The oath of office uh, at the time that they were developing the, the Constitution, the oath of office was uh, a simple one sentence, short sentence. It said, I do solemnly swear I will support the Constitution of the United States. That's it. That's all there was. And so uh, that stayed with us in, for 100 years. And in 1884, we rewrote the oath of office. This is significant because the oath that you're looking at right now is the oath today. That's the one that came in, eight, in 1884. And conservatives need to re, reunite around protecting the role of the states in the elections, and uh, but also on pushing back against the efforts to weaken the electoral college or federalizing our elections. That's what that's what Democrats do, and that's what they want to do. The ability for larger states to dominate the voices of smaller ones was unacceptable to our founding fathers. The electoral college protects the, that diversity. So the reason I stress this now is I believe, I really believe right now for the first time in 230 years, the war against the Electoral College is winning. The Democrats are winning right now. This has not happened before. And this is my opinion. And I believe it. And I think you will too. So uh, we, I, I know I sound hysterical when I talk about the Electoral College. You know, my wife and I have been married for uh, 61 years. We have 20 kids and grandkids. In fact, one is right here in the audience. My daughter Molly is here, um, and uh, and you know, so we we have a stake in this thing, and that's how, why we feel so strongly about it. And the Democrats are winning. And let me let me show you. You may not believe that, but I'm going to show you. In the next slide, we have. Uh, a lot, everyone here in, in America, really, right now, are, they know who Chuck Schumer is. A lot of them don't know who the next guy in charge of the Democrats, is, and that is a guy named Dick Durbin from Illinois. And uh, he said it's, it's time to end the Electoral College. He has introduced a resolution to end the Electoral College. Uh, there can't be any doubt about the fact that that's what the Democrats want to do. And I think we all know why they want to do that. A poll from uh, 2019 revealed that 60% of Democratic voters wanted to abolish the Electoral College and just 21% wanted to keep it. That's three to one on the Democrat side wanting to uh, get rid of the Electoral College. Now, remember that the, the 13 states back in, uh, in uh, 1787, so those uh, 13 states, four were large states. The rest of them were smaller states, and that's why they put it together. And actually, the same thing happened currently in 2020. 2020, uh, this last year, we had uh, of our 50 states, 
we had nine that were the the uh, had the majority of the population. Well, if those nine were able to get into this thing and win, then we would lose, and the, we would not have an electoral college. So I repeat, this is the first time in 2000 in uh, 230 years that the Democrats are winning the war against the electoral college. Now. We said before, there are two attacks on the Electoral College. One is the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Remember that term. That's the thing that would destroy this. And secondly, to reject the Electoral College results of the states. Well, we'll start with number two. Number two is pretty easy. I think we all understand that. That's the vote we were talking about that was on the 6th of, the, uh, of January of this last year. And that vote would, would have uh, rejected those uh, results. And uh, consequently, you know, a lot of people that, and I have to say this too, there are so many threats on members, Republican members of the of, uh, of Congress. They have said, if you don't if you go along with this, we're going to actually have primaries. We'll have someone running against you. We're going to be defeating you and all that. And that scared these guys. And a lot of them went along with this thing. Uh, I, in fact, my strongest supporter, a friend of mine uh, in Tulsa, uh, has been my friend for some 55 years on everything political. Uh, he actually went along with that group too. And not really realizing at that time, he was voting to deny the Electoral College. So I was very proud of very proud of the 44 of the 50. We have 50 Republican senators in the in the United States Senate. 44 of them uh, lined up and, and agreed and voted uh, properly, and I was very proud of them. Now back to uh, attack number one. This is the one that is that is a great threat that I think we're all uh, pretty much aware of. The national popular vote that we're talking about. National popular vote interstate compact. That gets rid of the Electoral College by having the states um, bind their Electoral College votes to the candidate who wins the national popular vote, not the candidate who wins the state. So that changes it all around. That means that you, if, if they vote as a group, then the states don't have a vote in this thing. And their, their job is to get 270 votes. And you're all familiar with why that is. 270 votes that will win this thing for them. So that's what they're trying to do. They have right now the 15 states plus uh, DC have joined 73% of the way there uh, to killing the electoral college. Now all they need is 74 more electoral votes, and and we're finished. We're wiped out. Wiped out. And. Uh, Good conservative Republicans don't understand this, and even some Republican members of Congress didn't realize that by supporting the January 6th vote, they were supporting the Democrats. And even you know, people that we knew and knew very well were doing that same thing. So we're, they are just now only 74 electoral votes short of eliminating the Electoral College. Now that's pretty serious. This has not happened before, and that's why this is so important right now. This is unprecedented, and people don't understand it, and people don't understand it back home. The next slide shows the states that right now are in the popular uh, vote uh, interstate compact. And now, these votes are primarily the far north, uh, northeast, and uh, California, Oregon, and 
in uh, in uh, Washington State. When you'd, you'd expect them to do that. So right now, that's what we're doing uh, in, in in the efforts. And now they have targets. They they got to come up with uh, a, a, a few more, 73 more votes. And to do that, they're they're going back to states who have voted for doing this to, to actually uh, at least in uh, in in one uh, one chamber have had the legislation to pass at least uh, uh, the compact. And so the, the states that are you see on that chart are Arkansas, Arizona, Maine, Michigan, Minnesota, North Carolina, Nevada, Oklahoma, my state, and Virginia. And so uh, all told, if these states who have already demonstrated that they could do this, that they have done this in one chamber, then, the, then uh, that would be 88 votes, which is much more than you need to swing this thing so that they would, they would now have a popular vote and do away with the electoral college. That's how serious it is. And it's hard, hard to explain this to people because this has been around, it's something that's been around for 230 years you think is, is not gonna be fragile like that, but it is. The risk is very real. A poll in Virginia, this is one of the states that they have on from uh, November of 2020, had 73% of the Democrats supporting the national popular vote. So you guys, this is real, it's out there. Uh, now, a lot of people say, though, there's an uh, article in the Constitution. It's article. There it is up there. Article three, uh, Article 10, Section 3. It says, no state shall, without the consent of Congress, enter into an agreement or a compact with another state. Well, that sounds, sounds good. It, the problem with that is it says, without the consent of Congress. Well, if you have a majority, and Democrats have a majority today, then they have the consent of Congress. That comes with it. So I'm, I don't think that that's any safety valve at all and we can't if it were that we couldn't take the risk anyway so with the national popular vote compact you can see what the democrats are doing they are you know so sore losers because uh, this electoral college has stood in their way for a long in the time they want to get rid of it so they're going to keep trying until they are able to get this thing done but they're winning right now they need 270 electoral votes they're 73% of the way there, 73 the way toward killing the Electoral College. They only need 74 more votes to make this happen. And so this has not been in the case before. This is a real direct threat. So let's uh, look at the Electoral College in a different light to let you look at it from a little different perspective. Here we have, oh, by the way, four people when I came in today we're saying, uh, is is Trump going to run again? And uh, I had to say, no, I don't know, but but everybody else is. I remember back in 2007, the first time the Democrats took over the House and the Senate and the White House, uh, I formed a club, this most exclusive club in Washington, D.C. It was called United States Senators Who Are Not Running for President. Well, I've renewed that club because they're they're out there right now and they're they're running fast. And so anyway. I want to tell you something that happened in uh, uh, June of uh, 2000, and, the, and you young kids in here, I'm going to give you each a copy of this thing. This is something that I did that uh, really was significant. The picture you're looking at right here is me giving to Donald Trump a document, this document. And I, what I did is I don't think that Trump even knew what all he was doing. All these things that he did in the first half of his term were great things that other people had talked about doing, but they never did, they never could get it done. 
So here's the top ten things. In the picture, there's me handing it to him. He's looking at it, and we're reading it. And there are things like uh, uh, what Trump did. This is the first half of his uh, administration. The biggest tax cuts, and uh, and this was the tax cuts. By the way, the idea of increasing revenue by reducing taxes actually does work. It was John Kennedy that figured it out. It was a Democrat, not a Republican, and uh, he said the Great Society is going to cost a lot of money. Hans, it's going to cost a lot of money, and that if we're going to do this, we're going to have to get more revenue. And the best way to increase revenue is to de decrease marginal rates. That was Kennedy. Now, unfortunately, he died before he had the chance to reap the benefits of that, but it worked. And every president since then has recognized that. Now, the, uh, the, the second thing that Trump did on this list, you have to look at this list. You have to realize some really good things happened. Uh, he did the something over and above what others had done in cutting the tax rates. He also cut the regulations. And we had all these regulations from the Obama administration. I remember one of them was, I'm from uh, an oil and gas state. Uh, in in uh, his administration, this is Obama's administration, he had made it very clear that, uh, that, uh, that he wanted to give an advantage to uh, anyone except the oil and gas industry. So he had a, he had a, 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 a regulation that said if you are a domestic oil and gas company and you're running against China on something or competing with China, you have to give them your whole play card. So putting them at a disadvantage. And so that was in there. And that's, the, of course, the, the president got in. The very first thing that he did away with was that particular regu regulation. And that was mine, by the way. Then the next thing, uh, energy dominance. All of a sudden, we are the 277% growth in crude oil and all other of the petroleum industry, which gave us the the uh, the economy that we had. You know, we had uh, prior to the pandemic that took place, we had the greatest economy, and that was during the Trump administration. We had the greatest economy that we've had in my lifetime. In my lifetimes, I'm old. It's a long time. So, in uh, 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 crackdown on the illegal aliens. No, we are the only big free country that doesn't have some type of border security. And there they were down there. And the, the population, the popularity of this thing was actually 71 71% of the people wanted a secure border. It's not. It's nothing against Central Americans or, or Mexicans. It's just securing the border. And that's what their effort was. And all these things were, were done. And on this, and I remember, you don't see the picture anymore of it. Me handing this to Trump, that was that was. Uh, uh, he he looked at it and he said, "I did all of that." He wasn't even aware of it, but he 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 did it all. So anyway, this guy, uh, you know, he did a great job and all that. But I want to tell you though, um, we did this in uh, 2000, uh, June 18th. The picture you saw with me and Trump that was in uh, June 20th, 2008. So um, anyway. Uh, he 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 did all of that, and the senators that are uh, and very successful. So anyway, I'll give you all uh, one of these cards so you can see what did happen. Now, what would normally be the case? Normally, if you're looking at a situation we have right now, we have uh, a, a different president now. We have a liberal Democrat. The president is going to try to take everything that this uh, president did and do away with it. And so what I would normally say in a normal circumstances, I said, don't worry about it. 
because uh, history is on our side. The party who wins the White House loses uh, in Congress. And this is, so that's going to happen again. Uh, this card that I gave you on the June 20th, these are the top successes that we had. Uh, what would we normally say in a normal circumstance? We'd say, don't you guys worry about this. Everything is going to be fine. 2022, everything is going to be coming back. And, uh, and, and, and we need to be focused on how united the candidates should be. We should be talking about in the Senate, Georgia, Arizona, New Hampshire, Nevada. We're going to flip those seats. We're going to take up back the House and the Senate. It's, uh, everything is going to be rosy. That's what we normally would say. However, that's not the case right now because while history would be on our side, that's not the way we're looking at now, and we can't afford to do that. In the last 21 midterm elections, pre the president's party has lost House seats and 19 of them out of 21. Now, the average loss is in, the, in Congress is 33 seats, and we only need uh, five seats to become a majority. So it, it's a no-brainer. We're going to pass. But that's under normal circumstances. But the problem is that it, we would take all that back unless, unless they're able to get this group is able to get 270 votes, electoral votes, then it's over. You know, I don't want to sound hysterical on something like this, but it's over. It, 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 you go to a, a popular vote, no one's going to vote for Republicans, and they don't carry anything. And so that's the seriousness of the problem that we have. So I would say that a lot of things uh, that uh, uh, even members of the, uh, the legislature are not uh, aware of it. Oklahoma is the reddest of the red states, and they don't even know it. On January 6th, Republican activists tried to take balloting away from the states and give it to the feds, exactly what Schumer and the, the Democrats uh, have been trying to do for several years. They're actually got some of the Republican congressmen to throw in with their uh, with the Democrats in rejecting the Electoral College. And that just happened. Our own members, in fact, five of them were members of the of uh, Congress from my state of Oklahoma. And they all joined in on this thing because it sounded good and it was popular. But uh, I think particularly you young people are here. I want to talk to you after this about ways that you can do things that are unpopular, that are the right things to do. And it does take a little bit of courage to do that. So I'm going to finally end up with this. I know I'm going over my time, and I'm not going to let that happen, Hans, but uh, I just want you to know that there are some things that we can do to stop them. There are three things specifically. First of all, we need to stop the two attacks on the Electoral College. We've seen that. We know what that is. We know that we can do that. Secondly, we want to maintain the state control of balloting. It sounds so simple. It sounds, but nobody really understands that, but that can be done. And the third thing is we need to educate our Republican congressmen. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal. I'll do the further, I'll do the last one uh, if you do the first two. And uh, we'll actually we'll end up winning this thing. So we got to say that we got a country to save and we're going to do it together. It's around to you. Thank you.
Thank you, thank you, Senator Inhofe. Uh, we're now going to be joined by uh, Trent England, um, who is joining us remotely from Oklahoma. And uh, Trent is an old friend and a former colleague of mine. Um, he's the executive director of Save Our States, which he founded in 2009 to oppose the national popular vote plan. Uh, he's also the producer of the award-winning uh, documentary, Safeguard, an electoral college story. This is, I think, the best documentary I've seen about why the electoral college is so important. And Trent, I say that uh, not, not just because you included me in the documentary <laughs> in an interview. Uh, he's also the uh, David and Ann Brown Distinguished Fellow at the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs. Trent, I want to start with you. Um, a lot of people seem convinced that uh, the, the way we have uh, set up our electoral college, for example, and other protections to prevent what the founders feared, which is the tyranny of the majority, that we're the only uh, uh, democracy, in our case, Democratic Republic, that does that. Is that really true? Thanks. Thanks for the question, Hans. And, and uh, I should thank uh, our, our senator, our Oklahoma Senator uh, Inhofe, for, for his great remarks uh, at the beginning of all this. Uh, no, it's, it's not true. You know, our, our Electoral College is unique in its details, but it's not unique in its purpose. And this is something that people miss um, over and over again. E even defenders of the Electoral College miss the fact that uh, the alternative that Congress, that, that, the, that the Constitutional Convention first considered was to have Congress elect a president, was basically to have a parliamentary system. I mean, that, uh, that is still the, the most common way for major democratic nations to elect their top executive official. And a parliamentary system is less direct than our electoral college. And when you look at the two major countries that, that wrote or rewrote constitutions in the 20th century, India, when they gained independence, and Western, West Germany after World War II, they both created a kind of electoral college system. Uh, and and the, the purpose of all of these is in part to create some checks and balances to make sure that you don't have a couple of major cities or one you know, population dense region controlling everybody else. So um, our electoral college is, is genius because the founders created something a little bit different from a parliamentary system, actually something that worked out to be a little bit more directly um, democratic. It, it's a two-step democratic process. Um, but, uh, but no, it's not, it, it's not unusual at all when you look at successful major democratic countries around the world. Uh, do you want to comment about that, Senator Inhofe? I defer to him. He's right. <laughs> um, Senator, one of the things you, 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 one of the themes of what you've really talked about, certainly with the Electoral College, it would seem to me would also apply to the filibuster. Now you've been you've been in the Senate when when you've been part of the majority. You've been in the Senate when you've been part of the minority. And is how important is preservation of the filibuster again to prevent? The tyranny of the majority. The reason you're asking that is there are so many that are trying to make that case right now that the Democrats would like to do away with it. The filibuster is there to make sure that everybody's in the room. Everyone's going to be participating in this thing. 
and and uh, if, if, if they're able to do this, then then they are they are players. Now it's pretty short-sighted of Democrats right now because since they're a majority, then they they think that uh, they'll always be a majority, I guess. But you, in order to have a feel about this, it, it would take 60 votes to pass some things, and I can think of so many things that have happened where we were very fortunate, and when we were Demo when we, we were actually minority and majority that the filibuster is necessary to be a part of it. So I, I, I don't think that's going to happen, but there's an effort uh, there to make that happen by the Democrats. And going along that theme, and I actually want to put this question to, to both of you. Um, again, the theme of, of what you're talking about, Senator, is the fact that um, the founders really wanted the states deciding uh, and, and deciding how the electoral college system would work in their particular states. Uh, they've been running our elections for over 200 years, and yet we seem to have a third thing going on now, which is an attempt to, again, federalize the whole election process with uh, S-1 and H-R-1, which are currently uh, in, in the Senate. And just starting with you on that, I mean, what do you think about that bill and how dangerous a threat is that? amazing. When people hear about it, they, they don't really believe this could happen in America. And just let me, it, it's appropriate you're asking me this question because at five o'clock today I'm giving a speech on this. So I'm really up on this thing. This is what the Democrats want to do to our election system. The, um, first of all, they block ID, uh, voter ID laws. Uh, secondly, allow ballot harvesting. We all know what that is. Uh, third, uh, match small-dollar donations six to one from federal coffers. Four, require same-day voter registration. You kids listen to this? This is what they're, they're trying to get past. Uh, number five, uh, allows felons to vote. Number six, requires automatic voter registration. Number seven, allows voters to cast ballots outside of their precincts. And it goes on and on. There are uh, a long list of things. Now, keep in mind, they have a majority in the House and they have a majority in the Senate. So this is something that is, is a threat, and they're, they're, they're committed to this. And that makes it a lot easier to steal elections if you, if you have all these uh, provisions in there. Trent, what's, what's the view in Oklahoma? You're talking to us from there about this federal attempt to basically tell the legislators of Oklahoma and the residents uh, from Washington, well, we're now going to tell you how to run your elections. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm actually, I flew out of Oklahoma last night. I'm actually in Nevada on my way to Arizona. So I can, maybe, maybe I can speak on behalf of three different states. Now, I, you know, I, I, I think that when you talk to people outside of D.C., and really just when you talk to anybody about this who's outside of the kind of left-wing bubble on elections, uh, I mean, so much of what, what Senator Inhofe just talked about uh, in terms of election security is just common sense to people. I mean, I, I had to show an ID yesterday to check my bag. I had to show an ID to get to the gate. I had to show an ID to rent a car. I had to show an ID to check into my hotel. Uh, I, I mean, the idea that, uh, that voter ID is somehow you know, either a vote suppression scheme or racist is absurd to most Americans. I mean, the polling shows like 70% of Americans, you ask them about this and they say, well, yeah, of course, why, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't we have people show an ID to vote? You have to show an ID to do all kinds of things. 
so when you describe the details of this legislation to people out in the heartland, uh, they think it's absurd. Uh, I, I think the challenge is oftentimes, and, and you know, the senator really alluded to this several times, people just think, well, it's absurd, so it's not going to happen. And that, that's, a, that's my biggest concern. That's actually why I'm out here. I'm going to speak to a group of Republican women uh, down on the Colorado River today and, uh, and talk about the fact that these threats are real. And, uh, and, and these threats, if we don't stop them, they're imminent. You know, the, the left has a vision for what they want to do to this country, and it involves federalizing elections, shifting that power to D.C., and then basically forcing California-style election policies on the whole country. If we don't want that to happen, we have to make sure that we don't let it happen. So, uh, no, I, I, think this, I think this threat is real, and I think that, uh, that most Americans will stand up against it if they have the facts. You know, I always feel helpless when I try to get a point across like that. Now, you are, you're a lot smarter than I am, and you have a lot, a lot of uh, probably a much better following. I want everyone to listen to you because you're saying the same thing that we were saying. This hasn't happened before. We have not been in a situation before where we, our electoral college has been threatened. It's threatened today, and we've been very specific about what they do. Pretty smart of them, I have to say this. They put this thing together. And if they, they, if they can compact all of these votes into one vote, they could make it, they're planning on making it to 270 votes. So you're right, the threat is greater now than it's, it's been before. And I, I, you know, as old as I am, I want to make sure that I get this thing done before we die. You know, it's interesting this has become such a partisan issue because uh, I actually, wrote a heritage paper about this and I found a great I, I read that too. I, I, I found a great quote from Senator John Kennedy talking about how important it was to preserve the electoral college to protect the smaller more rural less populated states but uh, here's my question for you and if I can just quickly explain to the audience the national uh, popular vote compact is basically an agreement by each state um, the compact will go into effect, as the senator says, when 270 electoral college votes, states representing those, have passed it. And basically, in the compact, each state says, we will award our electoral college votes not to the presidential candidate who the majority of our voters voted for, but whoever wins the national popular vote. My question, Senator, is uh, as a legislator who's been elected, I have a hard time believing that this would not cause chaos because, for example, if we had a presidential election in which the Republican got the national popular vote, I think the residents and voters of California, when they found out after the election that their electoral college votes for their state, you know, the majority of Californians vote, voted for the Democrat, but that the electoral college votes in their state were being awarded to the Republican, not the Democrat, I think the, the, uh, the telephones at the state legislature would melt down with angry callers, and it, I would think that the legislators would immediately move right after the election to pull themselves out of the national popular vote plan, which then would cause this confusion. Who gets their electoral college votes? I mean, do you see that as a real problem? Well, yeah, I see it as a problem, you know, but they've been trying to think of a way to do this for, for uh, 230 years. 
And so they're coming up with this at this time because timing-wise, this is something that they are looking at as they can do. I mean, you saw the slides that we had up here. With the, right. It's already been introduced by uh, Dick Durbin and by, well, by several of the, of the Democrats. And, uh, but while it's short-sighted in terms of the circumstances that could come up, as you described, nonetheless, it's wrong anyway. And that's what we're going to have to do. And it's going to take a real education. Anytime we have our own members of the United States Congress uh, joining in something like this, it's, it's, it's scary. And uh, so I would say, yeah, be chaos and just not let it happen. Right. Uh, Trent, I think the compact actually has some kind of supposed limitation on withdrawal, saying a state can't withdraw for some certain period of time, but that doesn't really seem enforceable, is it? Yeah, that's that's right. The compact has a clause that says you can't withdraw in the six months before the beginning of the next president's term, trying to avoid states from pulling out um, either right before or right after the election. Uh, it, it's it's interesting because that that provision interacts with the jurisprudence around the compact clause, which has already been mentioned. Um, the, the Supreme Court has never really enforced the compact clause in the Constitution, but it has said that if you have a compact that limits a state's ability to unilaterally pull out, that that's the kind of compact that should have the consent of, of Congress. So to the extent that it might be enforceable, it certainly would need the consent of Congress. Um, but I think that the, the scenarios are actually, uh, you know, they go beyond a state legislature taking a state out. You could have one state judge in California who, uh, you know, somebody sues after the election. They say, we don't, you know, we don't like how this is going. We think this somehow violates our rights as California voters. And you could have one judge just strike the compact down when it comes to the state of California, right? So I, I think, I actually think that's a more likely scenario for states to try to game the process, not through the legislative branch, but through the judicial branch. And, and the, you know, the other thing that that ties directly into what Senator Inhofe has been talking about this morning. You know, imagine an election under this compact where you have all of these compact states, if, if they hit that 270 threshold, you have enough states that, that together they can control the outcome of the election. But you have ind independent, you know, individual elected officials within each of those states who's actually determining what the national pop popular vote result is for that state. And I think sometimes people, you know, the, the devil is in the details here, right? People think, oh, well, national popular vote, so that they're going to look at that ticker at the bottom of CNN and go off of that. No, every every state in the compact would have to, to collect all the vote totals from every other state, come up with its own total. Uh, you know, if that works perfectly, the left maybe gets what they want. If it breaks down, the left also gets what they want. Uh, because I think they could force even more fundamental changes to the to the system. But in the midst of, I mean, how would that break down? It would break down because you might have the Secretary of State of California uh, say, well, we think that states that are requiring voter ID are engaged in vote suppression. So you know what? We're not going to consider the votes from Texas part of the national popular vote. We think it's, you know, we, we think it's beyond the pale. Um, or states using a certain kind of voting machine or, or whatever they could come up with. Um, you would have secretaries of state in these, you know, who oftentimes want to be the state's next governor or next U.S. senator uh, in these very liberal states in charge of determining how to give away all of their state's electoral votes based on, you know, their interpretation of the national popular vote. It's, it's really a crazy thing. 
it, you know, it's it's amazing. I think that we've had even 15 states um, enact this. I mean, obviously, it's it's you know left wing ideology that's driving this, but it's it's really dangerous. Uh, Senator, what what are the I guess bumper sticker themes you constantly see by the supporters of the national popular vote plan is one person one vote and that somehow we're violating that. No, I notice they don't say one citizen one vote. Um, but I guess what what's your response to that? Well, the response to that is that is as we've uh, pointed out, if you look at 2016, as I mentioned in my remarks. Uh, we were in a situation where we had uh, we knew it, it would uh, we we had the number of uh, people that were there, and uh, Hillary Hillary actually got the popular vote, but she also, uh, if you look at the counties, she represented at that time only 484 counties in the entire country, when uh, our president, the successful president actually represented 2,600 in some uh, counties. So that is shows the breadth of the support of, of what's out there with the real people. And uh, people don't realize that, but that is, that is a fact. I didn't believe those figures. In fact, there's someone in the room right now that I had to challenge on that, and they showed me that was in, in fact right. So this thing that was put together, another thing we haven't talked about is all the the hostility and the threats and the bad things that are going on by a lot of Republicans who are kind of sucked into this thing. So uh, it's been a tough, uh, tough time. I got a gratifying uh, call from my wife this morning who said, and I won't read the whole thing, but she said, I was so proud of you. You stood and raised your hand before God and all of Congress and took the oath of office. Uh, this one had more meaning because you knew what you would be facing. She was talking about all of the hatred and the threats and all that that came with this. Right. So unfortunately, some bad things were happening at that time. Uh, Trent, if I can go back to you for a second, because um, you've really been down in the states talking to state legislators and other others about this. And so far, the, the 15 states, the District of Columbia, it's all been blue states that have passed the national, or decided to join the National Popular Vote Compact. One of the big exceptions to this, as you know, was uh, a year or two ago when the um, democratically controlled legislature in Nevada passed a resolution to join the compact, and it was the Democratic governor who actually vetoed it, saying that this would hurt smaller, uh, less populated, more rural states. I, what I, what surprised, I mean, that was, he was very smart and correct about this. What surprises me is why have other uh, smaller jurisdictions, like the District of Columbia and other states, joined this, which gives them actually less, less uh, influence in the presidential election? Do they just not realize what they're doing? You know, I, I think a couple of things are going on. Uh, I mean, I, I've been doing this for a dozen years. And when I started out, you'd go to a place like Connecticut or Rhode Island or Delaware, and you'd have this conversation with Democrat state legislators. And, and in many cases, and, and you know, in some places, um, you know, I think like Connecticut, really in most cases, legislators got it, right? I mean, Democrat legislators, uh, they, they understood this, um, just as you describe. And... Over the last 10 years, 
we have really seen a, a shift and it's uh you know it, it's a it's a shift within the democratic party where you have a lot more of the kind of aoc style very ideological democrats they're not interested in their their state uh or their state authority or the constitution or even arguments about stability uh they you know they have this much more militant i guess mindset and uh and we've gone from where you know 10 years ago delaware connecticut rhode island all those states were saying no way uh to uh to where obviously all those states have have jumped on the bandwagon colorado did this on a party line vote um new mexico did it when the legislature you know once the democrats took complete control there in 2019 uh, and you know the governor Sislak here in in nevada where i just happen to be at the moment um, is uh, you know he's a pretty left-wing Democrat, but he's very independent. He's not a, a party guy so much, and uh, and frankly, from working behind the scenes here in Nevada, you know my belief is that there were some legislators who were basically sort of forced into voting for national popular vote, even though they thought it was a bad idea. Um, they you know they're Democrats. They, their leadership was twisting their arms, and uh, I, I think I think that may have have uh, helped to to precipitate the governor vetoing the bill. Yeah, well, Trent, you know, you, you're pointing out something here uh, kind of indirectly. This, it's real. It's what's happening right now. And that is the, uh, you remember when we had all of the Democrats that were running for president, this was, uh, and, and you never saw a group of people like that. There are about 15 of them. And they were all, they're seeing how far, far left could they go. Uh, you know, I can remember when socialism was a dirty word. It's not anymore. They're out in front, and they're talking about this, and they're they're proud of it. And and you have look the, the vice president that we have right now, uh, the, the things that she believes. Democrats didn't used to believe. They may have, might have believed it, but they didn't talk about it publicly. Now they are. Now I look at the bright side of this thing. I think people realize. Look what's happening to law and order in America. These become partisan issues. A strong national defense. That's a partisan issue. Republicans are on the right side of all of these issues. And so I think that with the extreme position that Democrats are now joyfully taking, that that's going to be their demise. How important, Senator, do you think this issue is um, for the upcoming uh, 22 elections? In other words, uh, how important is it to voters to consider the positions of, of candidates, elected officials on this issue? I, I think this, well, it's, it's critical because in terms of uh, the popularity of these issues, clearly they're on our side. And, and, and that's something that I, I believe people will understand. One thing that people understand around this country is that the media is not on their side. I think Trump did a good job in making that forcefully known. And so I think that they're going to look at this thing right now and say, well, do we really want to do this? Do we really want to reject border security? Do we really want to have I mean, right now? If you look what what happened in, during the, the last uh, five years of Obama in his his time, he downgraded the military by 25 percent in five years. That would have been between 2010 and 2015. Now, at the same time that was happening, China, in the same five years, increased their military by 83 percent. I mean, it's a dangerous, dangerous world out there. People know that. They can figure that out. 
So I think we're on the right side of these issues. People want law and order. They're offended by the members of Congress, the House and the Senate, now on the Democrat side, that are that come out uh, against their own law and order and their own standards. And I sit on the floor and I listen to that. And I think uh, American people, they've gone too far this time, and American people will wake up in 2022. That is assuming they don't reach the 2,270 uh, votes. Um, Trent, Hans, can you? Can I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'd love to just jump in on that, just with with one point that I think is important uh, for, for folks out out there to think about. You know, the left's message on elections is very motivating to voters. When you when you tell people the other side is trying to suppress your vote, they're trying to keep you from voting. You know, I, I mean, frankly, I. I try to give people the benefit of the doubt, but I think that I think there are plenty of folks on the left who don't. They they know that's not true, but they also know it motivates their voters to get to the polls. And I think we see a dangerous trend on the right for people to to become very pessimistic about elections that they're all rigged, which which is not true. I mean, having worked down at the county level on this, um, there are a lot of counties that run very very clean elections, and anybody who's serious about election security should go do that. And uh, and be a part of the solution, but when you know if if the right starts to wallow in this this rhetoric that uh, elections are rigged, while the left is uh, you know is is pushing out to their people the message that well you know the other side's trying to keep you from voting, uh, that's going to drive out voters on the left and suppress voting on the right, and that that's my concern about 2022. It's not. You know, it's not a prediction, but it's it is a warning that if we wind up in that situation on issues like this, uh, you know, some of the gains that Republicans expect might not materialize. Yeah, no, that's that's really true. Uh, everyone needs to get out and vote. Uh, yeah, there are some vulnerabilities in the systems that need to be fixed, but uh, that that's no reason not to go vote. In fact, what that means is uh, you should be talking to your state legislators about fixing some yeah. of those issues, like making sure, for example, that we have clean voter rolls. Trent, Trent deal with one issue that I, I think it's a false claim, but maybe you can explain why, and that is that uh, both uh, uh, Hillary Clinton and others have claimed that the Electoral College system was put in to somehow preserve slavery, which is pretty difficult to understand since at the time of the Constitutional Convention, slavery was legal everywhere in the United States. But can you talk about that for just a minute? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, this is this has become a line that the left pulls out of their pocket on anything in the Constitution they don't like, right? If if it's in the Constitution and they like it at that moment, then somehow it's not because of slavery or racism. But if they don't like it, it is. Um, and oftentimes their argument is is you know almost as simplistic as that. Uh, the Electoral College, you know, as I mentioned before, was really an alternative to a parliamentary system. And if Congress had elected the president then the you know the whole question of the three-fifths compromise and in in the census and all that would have would have worked exactly the same way right so the idea that the electoral college uh uniquely incorporated the three-fifths compromise into presidential elections is just bogus on its face um it, that would have happened under a parliamentary system that was in the virginia plan uh you know frankly by having an electoral college and taking it out of congress uh, it, it gave more flexibility to the states that that did begin to abolish slavery. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize, I mean, it, it was federalism. It was putting the power in the states that gave the states opportunities to allow women to vote, allow racial minorities to vote, get rid of property restrictions. All these things happen in the states before they ever happen at the federal level. 
Um, so, you know, people, people miss all this. And the first time in Congress that I can detect when there was a debate about, well, maybe we should change the system, maybe we should get rid of the Electoral College or, or do something different, um, there was a vote in the United States Senate on this in, I think it was 1817, and, um, and the vote was perfectly split. Um, it, was, it was evenly split in the North, it was evenly split in the South, uh, states with slavery, states without slavery. The idea that the politics of slavery was the, the one dominant thing at the Constitutional Convention, um, or even in the first few decades of our, uh, of our republic is, is not true. It's actually taking the politics of the 1840s and 1850s and, and sort of looking at the earlier time period through that lens, which is, I mean, creates all kinds of, of distortions. So now it's, it's, it's not true. And, and actually it's, I think it's, it's a myth. It's fairly easy to dispel um, just, just when you point out to people that, hey, you know, this was an alternative to a parliamentary system. It, it wasn't like the debate was just popular vote or electoral college. Uh, popular vote was talked about, but uh, it, didn't, it, never, it never really had that much support. Any, any comments on that, Senator Inhofe? I, I just, uh, I think in the final analysis, we're going to be in good shape on this uh, because we, we've, we've, this thing has survived for a long period of time. We'll keep people, people need to be aware of it. This is the problem we had in Oklahoma. So many people were not aware of it. You know, I can remember going to the state convention uh, this is uh, just a couple of months ago, Republican State Convention. Here I've been involved in many, many years, and I've always, I've, I've you know, been designated as the most conservative member and all of that. And here's, we had 3,000 people there, Hans, and they had this thing by a group of people that were really filled with hate. They said, now in the beginning of the convention, there will be lots of politicians speaking, including Inhofe and Langford. They need to be booed until they leave the stage in the convention. If you don't want them to, to boo them, stand up, turn your back to them, and walk out of the main thing. But, but whatever you do, don't be nice to them. And then it goes on and on, giving instructions on how to boo. Now, if you stand up, you give a 45-minute speech uh, when they've just told, taught people how to boo you. This is the type of thing, and, and what you're trying to do is save the the system that we've been talking about this morning. So those things are happening right now, and I think people are, there will be a wake-up call, and people will realize that they don't want to be a part of what the Democrats have been trying to do for a long period of time, and uh, and and, and will uh, and will win in the final analysis. Yeah, I I have to say I think one of the worst trends, a little bit off the topic, but related to the topic. One what's one of the worst trends in America in the last uh, 10 years has been the loss of civility in the public arena. You know, we, we've always should have been and have been able to debate even contentious issues on a civil basis. And that seems to have completely disappeared and unfortunately social media platforms have I think contributed to this uh, to leading to harassment and intimidation of individuals just because they disagree on important issues. Um, we are, we are getting to the last of our time. So uh, I'm going to I'm going to end with you, Senator. But so first, we're going to go to Trent. Trent, any any final remarks on uh, the importance of the Electoral College for our audience? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, democracy is a process. It's not a purpose, right? The, the most the most undemocratic parts of our constitution are actually anti-democratic. They're the Bill of Rights, right? Nobody nobody criticizes the Bill of Rights because it says that a majority cannot take away your freedom of speech or your right to petition the government, uh, right? We, we understand that those kind of checks on majoritarianism are a good thing. Uh, the Electoral College, it, I mean, it is a democratic process. It's a two-step democratic process similar to what other countries use with our own American twists uh, to it. It's actually more direct uh, than, uh, you know, more directly democratic than parliamentary systems are, where you can change the prime minister without ever having an election at all. Uh, you know, our electoral college has, has stood the test of time and, you know, all conservatives should support it because we've got this instinct to support our constitutional structures and things that have stood the test of time. But even Americans on the left should support it because if we don't have a stable political system that works, right, we're all in trouble and not in trouble because the other side's going to win, but in trouble because we're all going to lose. The Electoral College helps to protect this environment in which we can debate and sometimes we win, sometimes we lose, uh, but at least we all know the rules of the game. We can operate accordingly and that's, that's why Save Our States does what, what we do to defend the Electoral College. Senator Inhofe? Well, the reason I spend so much time talking about the Constitution, because it's very specific, and uh, I think three different mentions uh, in the Constitution on why it is the states that have to do the balloting, the presidential balloting. It's the states, and uh, you have to repeat that, and when that's repeated as it is in our Constitution, people have to understand that's it. Now, is that wrong? In some people's minds, it is. But the Constitution is there. It is, it, it is something that you can quote and you can come to and say, yes, we want to make sure that we do the constitutional thing because, you know, it still works. And I think it's divinely inspired when you stop and think about the fact that why this was important back when we had 13 colonies and four of them for the large ones. And then coming up a couple hundred years later, and it's the same thing, except the numbers change. It's now 50 states, but with, uh, with, uh, with nine controlling everyone else. Well, that's, it shows why it happened, and there's justification for it, and that's another good answer to the question when they talk about what's constitutional in, in uh, one man, one vote. So the Constitution still works, and I know sometimes that the, it's very unpopular. Uh, when you state it, but uh, it's still there, and I think we'll win eventually. Well, we're we coming to the we're, we're we're coming to the end of our program. Um, I do want to say one final thing on this. Uh, first of all, uh, for folks who are interested in this topic, we have put out a great a booklet called the Essential Electoral College. You can download it. Uh, as a PDF from our website uh, for folks who want to actually distribute these beautiful uh, color copies, uh, just contact us and we'll be happy to provide you with those. Uh, Trend England, you, you all helped us with this and uh, helped endorse this, so I thank you for that. Um, the, the final thing I want to say about this, uh, the, the importance of the Electoral College and those who are trying to change it with the National Popular Vote Plan is that uh, and I guess I say this as a first-generation American. You know, my parents experienced uh, tyrannical dictatorships. 
And I don't think a lot of Americans understand how uniquely stable our government is. Um, for over 230 years, the keys to control of the White House have been peacefully handed over. There's never been a coup d'etat. There's never been uh, anyone who has refused to do that. Um, yeah, we had violence we shouldn't have had on January 6th, but on January 20th, uh, the new president took control. So every four years, every eight years, for our entire history, we've had presidential elections, the new president has been elected or a president has been reelected, and no one has ever been put in a position of saying, uh, we are not going to leave office, we're staying in office. The kind of things that happen all too often in other countries have not happened. That is a testament to the stability of the electoral college system. And those who want to change it have not made the case for changing it. And that kind of stability is something that other people around the world wish they had in their countries. So if we could have a, a round of applause for Senator Inhofe and uh, for, for Trent England uh, remotely from, where are you, Arizona? Arizona, Trent, right? Uh, yeah, Nevada, Arizona today. So thank you all very much for attending, and uh, uh, thank you to our audience remotely that's been watching and listening to this too. Thank you very much.